Well, good evening, and thank you for having me here this evening. I'm honored to be speaking here at Cornell, and I'm grateful to kind of be here at the end of the semester to talk with you about the soul, which of course is a, in, a topic of special interest to me, not just as a priest, but specifically also as a philosopher. Now, of course, what I'm going to give you this evening is an unabashedly Thomistic account of the soul and why it might survive the death of the body, and also particularly why the resurrection is necessary. And so I'm going to give you, in about 40 minutes, what I normally teach my students in a semester. It's going to be fun, don't worry. But it does mean that I can't go into details about everything. That's what the Q&A is going to be about. Now, some of the ways in which St. Thomas talks about the soul might and probably should be surprising to you. But it will also, I think, explain why it is, what it is that makes the Thomistic account of what the soul is unique, and why it is uniquely suited to explain the necessity of the resurrection of the body, which is, of course, a central and core belief of Christianity. So, I've also uh, was told that sometimes in some of the question and answer periods this, semester, this year, and the various talks on the soul, there has been some confusion about uh, whether or not Catholics, and specifically St. Thomas, has a dualistic understanding of the soul. And so part of what I'm going to do here is try to address what makes St. Thomas's understanding of the soul different than, say, a dualist position on mind. And so I'm going to begin by giving a brief overview of the theory of soul, and then end the lecture by discussing the peculiar character of the soul as it is separated from the body. And so with that, let's begin. Now again, I want to add a caveat to the people in the audience this evening, and also those on the podcast for whom we're recording this, um, a few warnings. That first of all, right, that one of, some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about this evening touches upon a lively debate among Thomists and others about whether or not the separated, separated soul is properly a person. And this is a debate based around a technical definition of the term person, usually related to a definition given by the philosopher Boethius that St. Thomas adopts. I do not plan on addressing that question directly this evening, and I hope to keep, to keep my description of St. Thomas acceptable for both corruptionists and survivalists in that debate. Now, um, for purposes of full disclosure, I tend to be more sympathetic to a corruptionist point of view, and part of what I'm going to say tonight will show that. Now, if you have no idea what I just said, that's okay. This is just for people who might be familiar with that particular debate. So with those preliminaries out of the way, let's move on to the lecture proper. Now, when talking about the soul and its survival after death, we have to begin by remembering what St. Thomas and those in the Thomistic school understand the soul to be. According to St. Thomas and Thomistic hylomorphism, the soul is not a substance in its own right, but rather the soul is something that we might refer to as a metaphysical part of an individual substance, a part which we call a form. This is a technical term. What is a form? Well, in brief, and this will be very brief indeed, the hylomorphist holds that things exist in two ways, that there are two, at least two, there are actually many, uh, several meanings, of the word to be, to exist. And that principally, we'd say that a thing exists actually, 
and then a thing exists potentially. Now, what it means to exist actually is relatively straightforward. It's the concrete description of what a thing is at the stable present. And so we might say, if we look at the water in this water bottle, we'd say that it's liquid, probably lukewarm, and it's within the bottle. That's also a property of it. We know where its place is. Now, things also exist potentially. And by potentially, we mean all the ways a thing can change or cause change. Change is a real, the possibility of change is a real feature of material things. But it's not really an actual feature. It's not describing the way something is actually at the present. But it is describing the way in which other things can, be, can act upon it or can do to it. So for instance, again, think about the water in this water bottle. Because of certain actual features about its liquid qualities, that tells us about what sorts of things can potentially contain it. So it can be contained by a water bottle. It can be contained by a cup. You can put it into a bowl. I could put it into a sink as long as I plug it up and it will be contained by the sink. But I couldn't put it into the sink and allow it to be contained if I don't plug it up because then it will just flow down the drain. Or if I try to hold it all in my hand, it'll make a huge mess and I don't want to do that. Right? This is because it so because of the quality of what it is, it can only as a whole be potentially contained by certain types of objects. Now that's a very simplistic way of understanding potency. There are other ways, more deeply metaphysical ways, we can talk about the potentiality of the water, but that's at least, I think, an easier way to understand what it means for something to be potentially. And that the water can be in particular locations because of its liquid, uh, of its liquid nature, and it cannot be in other places for very long because of its liquid nature. And these are potential properties of it. So again, potency is a real property of a, of a material thing that arises from, that is, that is a way that it is, that's distinct from the way that it is actually. So now, the point of saying this, right, is that any material object that we talk about, there is a metaphysical part that explains what it is actually, and another metaphysical part that explains what it is potentially. And in any material thing, we say that the actual part is its form, and its potential part is its matter. So the form makes the thing to be actually what it is in a stable state. The matter makes it possible for the thing to undergo particular kinds of changes. Now, when it comes to living bodies, living beings, the form has a special name. We call it a soul. And as Aristotle and St. Thomas tell us, right, the soul is the form of a living body. And what this means is that there are, in fact, lots of souls out there. The grass upon which you may have trod today is alive, and so it has a soul. The trees that you are seeing blooming outside are alive, and therefore they have a soul. All sorts of animals, from the simplest to the most complex, because they are alive, we say that their form is their soul. And likewise with human beings, that human beings have souls. Now some of this may sound odd, 
because we have a tendency to think that souls are inherently immortal and pe peculiar, in particular, to human beings. But in the Aristotelian intimistic sense, souls are really a broad notion, and that they're not necessarily immortal. Souls are just what it is that makes the living thing to be a particular kind of material body. Now, St. Thomas also tells us that when we are considering the definition or nature of the soul, that we must include within that definition of the soul the matter, or what types of, thing, types of change it can undergo. Because he says, if we only consider the form apart from the matter when we talk about the soul, then we are looking at it logically. And this is seen in the first uh, quote on your handout. So St. Thomas says that it, it is not the definition, that when we think about the soul without matter is not the definition that belongs properly to philosophy of nature, but is a logical one. So he says, that which includes matter but omits the form pertains to no one but the natural scientist. So just considering the matter of a living thing rather than considering it as a living thing. You can look at it that way as well. But then what is peculiar to the natural scientist is that the natural, and this is we mean by a philosopher who studies natural sciences. The philosopher who studies natural sciences looks particularly at the soul as being both um, as what it is in its actual properties and how it makes the matter to be in a particular way. Now, why do I bring this up? Because it shows that the definition of a material object, which includes living objects, must include in its definition a material element in order to understand the thing itself. Now, why does this material element matter? Because it what it shows us is that the form, or the soul, is not understandable, in most cases, apart from the matter which it ensouls. Just as matter is not understandable from the, apart from the form that makes it to be a particular kind of matter. And this is what we call hylomorphism, which comes from the two Greek words put together, hule and morphe, which are generally a word, hule is a word for matter, morphe is one of the words that Aristotle uses for soul, for a form. And so a particular thing always has a material aspect to what it is and a formal aspect to what it is. And this is particularly what makes the Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of a thing to be um, different from dualism, right? Because, especially, uh, so if we're thinking about dualism in a substance dualist sort of way, right, in a substance dualist sort of way, you have one thing called the body and one thing called the soul. But the way that the this, this, this substance dualist portrays these two things is the body is actually one thing and the soul is actually another thing and that there, there are a variety of ways in which you can describe how the soul and the body work together. But this is also different than, say, a standard understanding of dualism that we call property dualism. So in property dualism, generally the non-material property is either an effect of or supervenes over a material body. Whereas in the, and so it comes from or is related to a body. But in hylomorphism, it's so in some ways the body makes, brings the property about. But in, hylo, in a hylomorphic position, the soul is what makes the body to be the sort of thing that it is. 
And so, for instance, in a standard argument for property dualism, like the zombie argument, distinguishes the mind from the body by, by, by positing that the body can only explain so much and that we need something else, some other non-bodily property, to talk about mental activity. But what it presumes is that philosophical zombies are possible. That is, it's possible to have a human body without a human mind. But in the hylomorphic context, this is impossible. You can't actually have a human body without having a human soul, and certainly without, not without having at least the potential for a human mind. Again, there's a lot to go on in that topic, but I just wanted to at least bring that up briefly to distinguish this view from, say, a typical dualist position. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at the soul in particular and consider the soul as the form of the body. So now the soul as the form of the body gives the body its existence, but it also gives the body different powers to act. So typically, we can point out that some living bodies take, have powers to take in nutrition, to grow, to reproduce. Aristotle talks about these as the plant powers, that all living things, down to the very basic, even cellular level, have these types of powers. Animals have these very same powers to take in nutrition, to grow, and to reproduce, but they have something more. They have the power of sensation. They have, and in, if you have the higher animals, they even have the power of imagination. And then when you look at the human animal, according to Aristotle and St. Thomas, there's, an even, there's a third level of, different, of, of power type. And we talk about this as the intellect. Now, most of the powers of soul that plants and certainly animals have, most of these powers are associated or making particular body parts so that they can interact with the world in a material way. So, for instance, the power of nutrition is not just some abstract power that we have. It has to have some physical uh, constituents that allow us to interact with physical bodies, to take them in and make them part of ourselves. And so this is why we have the whole digestive system, where nutrition happens. Similarly, with our powers of sensation, the whole neural system throughout the body is what allows us to have, say, for instance, the sense of touch, but it also plays out with the other senses as well. And that the other senses tend to be even more specifically located. Right? When we hear, we usually hear through our ears. When we smell, we smell through our nose. When we taste, we taste with our tongue. When we see, we see with our eyes. If you take away these physical body parts, then you take away the sense as well. So St. Thomas and Aristotle spend pages and pages talking about this. Almost all of Aristotle's book two of his De Anima is spent talking simply about sensation and how sensation works. So I can't go into that tonight. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to take this at face value. And if you want, have questions about it, we can go into it later. But there is one power of soul that they identify as not requiring a part of the body. And that is the intellect. That the intellect does not need a bodily realizer in order to do its proper action. How is this so? How do we know this? Well, again, St. Thomas and Aristotle go, and go on and spend pages talking about this. But the way that they talk about and isolate different powers of soul is they look at the objects. 
the types of things that the powers of soul are oriented to interact with. So the sense of touch with things that have you know, roughness or coolness, right? The sense of taste interacts with flavors. The sense of, t of sight interacts with colors and all these sorts of things, right? So we can identify a particular power of soul by identifying the object that it interacts with. Now, when we consider the object that the intellect interacts with, we can realize that it, it, it is different from all the other powers of soul. That the intellect, according to St. Thomas and Aristotle, takes in what they call universal forms. What is a universal form? Well, a universal form is a form, a way of understanding how something is actually, but without considering its physical, its particular physical manifestations. We can consider it its general physical manifestations, but it's always something that can apply to many individuals and not just to one individual. That's why it's universal rather than particular. Particular would apply to one individual, but a universal applies to many. And according to Aristotle um, and St. Thomas, universals are necessarily immaterial. Why? Well, for St. Thomas, matter is what makes something particular. It's matter that makes a thing an individual object in the world. And so if, if you take the, uh, the form apart from the matter, you take it and make it immaterial, and then you can think about it as applying to many different individuals. And so it's only by immaterializing the forms through a particular process that we, don't, we won't go into this evening, it's through an immaterialization of the forms of the things that we observe that then the mind is engaged. And so the mind always thinks about universals. But as a result, what that means is the object of the intellect is an immaterial object. And so the intellect does not need a physical bodily part to do the sort of thing that it does. Now, there's a lot there, but the point I need to emphasize to continue, again, is that the nature of the object of the intellect is what tells us that it is immaterial, for no material power could grasp something universally. Now, that being said, because we humans are material beings, the intellect does use the body in order to understand. Aristotle actually says that the human... Uh, when the human understands, right, we actually use images to help us to understand. So quote two on your handout says the following. This is from Aristotle, book three of his Danima, chapter eight. He says, hence, no one can learn or understand anything in the absence of sense. And when the mind is actively aware of anything, it is necessarily aware of it along with an image. For images are like the sensuous contents, except that they contain no matter. And then St. Thomas, commenting on this passage in quote three on your handout, says the following. He says, It follows then that without some use of the senses, we can neither learn anything new, as it were for the first time, nor bring before our understanding any intellectual knowledge already possessed. Whether the intellect actually regards anything there must at the same time must be formed in us by, by a phantasm or an image, and that, that is a likeness of something sensible. So that sounds strange. 
And it sounds like it might be contradicting all that I was just saying about how the intellect has an immaterial object. Why would we think that the intellect has an immaterial object when it needs the imagination in order to think about things in an immaterial way? And also, Aristotle says that the image is somewhat uh, immaterial here. What does he mean by that? Well, again, I spent an entire chapter on my dissertation actually talking about that. So I, I can only say so much. But an image is always particularized because it's about some physical individual object. And so it has individualizing features of it that, that prevent it from being universal. But the mind takes out all the particularizing features and looks at the form without any of them and just understands it in a universal sense. But yet the intellect still uses the image in the way that we might use instruments to help us to do things. So for instance, think about the act of writing. If I were to write on this board, I can't just go up and move my hand and write stuff up there, although it looks a little bit chalky, so maybe I could. But most of the time, what you need to do is to take an instrument of some sort, say a piece of chalk, and use that to write marks on the board. Now, we would say, I am writing on the board, and that the power of being able to write is associated with me. Yet, I can never write without using an instrument of some sort. I need to have a piece of chalk, a marker, a pen, a pencil, or some sort of mark-making device. And then I can write things on boards and on surfaces. The writing implement, instrument, enables us to, me to write, even though I am the one who is properly said to write, and I'm the one who has the power to write. In a similar way, the image enables the mind to think about things universally on this view, because it provides the intellect with the raw material that it can then abstract and make into a universal form in order to consider that universal form. And so the mind uses the image in the way that we might use a writing implement. And so that's why Aristotle says that, in St. Thomas as well, that the intellect thinks, always thinks, with an image. Okay, with that set up, now we can begin to talk about that most pleasant of subjects, death. Now, death, on this account, is defined relatively simply. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. Or to put it another way, it's a separation of the form from the matter, or the act from the potency. Now, we take death for granted as one of the few certitudes in this life, but it is important to think about what makes death possible. After all, there are some things that cannot die. For instance, things that were never alive cannot properly be said to die. Rocks don't die. You can crush them, you can destroy them, you can melt them, or do any, sort of, any other sort of thing to them, but they don't die because they've never been alive. Uh, differently, by the way, angels cannot die. Because, though, because they were never properly alive, in the sense that angels never gave existence to a body. And therefore, they cannot be separated from a body. So angels cannot die. Now, rocks and living things do have a similarity in this sense, right? That rocks and living things can both be destroyed. It's just that we call the destruction of a living thing death, and we call the destruction of a rock or other non-living things, well, it's destruction or corruption. What makes it possible for them to be destroyed is the fact that they are material. 
Why do I say that? Because again, matter is potency. And so matter is what is the potential that allows the body to be destroyed, as well as to do other sorts of things. Certain types of interactions will destroy certain types of bodies. And so that not every sort of interaction is going to kill a body. So in even not every sort of interaction is going to kill a living body. So for instance, if you take salt and you throw it at me as a way of assaulting me, then you, you would not actually harm me. It may feel uncomfortable to have salt thrown at me, but it won't hurt me. But if I were to have a slug here and throw salt on it, it would be a rather gruesome death for the slug. So please don't try it. It's rather disgusting. But there, a slug's body is apt to corrupt by contact with a certain amount of salt because of the type of thing that it is, whereas my body is not apt to corrupt because when I come into co physical contact with salt on my skin because of the type of body that I am. And so bodies are apt to corrupt, but they're only apt to corrupt because of certain different types of interactions, because of the way that it is. But anyway, the key here is that it is matter, matter that is the potential for corruption or destruction of a thing. And so again, this is why angels who do not have a body are not subject to corruption or death, because they don't have a principle of corruption or destruction. Therefore, what makes it possible for us to die, and this may seem obvious, but it's at least important to note, what makes it possible for us to die is the fact that we have matter, that we have a body. Now here's the key point. The soul exists, the form of the body exists, if and only if, at least one part, uh, it, the soul exists after death, if and only if at least one part of it continues to exist. When the body dies or is destroyed, all the powers that have physical realizers in the body uh, then are destroyed along with those physical realizers. When the eye is destroyed, the power of sight is destroyed. When the tongue is destroyed, the power of taste is destroyed. And likewise, when all of the bodily powers are destroyed, so those powers along with them. But here's the thing. As we noted, on Aquinas' account, the intellect is immaterial. It has no physical realizer in the body. For sure, it uses images in the way that I might use a, a pen or a pencil, but I can destroy the pen or the pencil and not destroy my power to write. I just need to find another instrument. It's a little bit more complicated when it comes to souls, but at least that's the idea, right? If there is no physical realizer for the intellect, right, then the, and then the intellect is immaterial. And so even though the body that the soul was informing may be destroyed, the part of that soul that didn't require a body to exist can continue to survive after the death of the body. And so again, so this, and so this is why St. Thomas tells us that the soul is immortal, because there is a part of the soul that cannot corrupt or die, since it is naturally immaterial. And so since a part of the soul, namely the intellect, survives, so the soul also survives the death of the body, albeit in a severely maimed manner. Why do I say that? Well, let's consider this. Right? Uh, what, is, what does St. Thomas think the separated intellect is like? This can be very different from what you might have received in your catechism classes. The separated intellect is not a whole soul, because the human soul 
which the intellect is a part of, has lots of different powers. But only one power has survived the death of the body, the intellect itself. And so that means that the intellect and the soul to which the intellect belongs is severely limited in what it can do. Now I think uh, there's a helpful image that we can use to kind of grasp the, uh, the radical state of the separated intellect, to think of what it might be like. Let's think about having a brain separated from the body. Now, of course, some caveats here, right? This is simply a thought experiment. It's unclear whether or not a brain really can survive in the way I'm about to describe. So, it, so again, this is just a thought experiment. But I'm using it because culturally and imaginatively, it feels like at least a plausible scenario. So ignore the fact that we have a brain, but there's no fresh blood or oxygen entering it. And let's pretend that we've found a way to preserve it, the brain intact um, and, and allow it to continue existing alive. Second caveat. Remember, the brain is not the intellect. The brain, for Aquinas, is going to be the seat of the power of imagination and the power of memory. So these are sensitive powers. They need a physical realizer. And so actually, the brain then has three powers. It has the power of memory, it has the power of imagination, and it has the power of intellect. But now again, let's suppose we have this separated brain. We have it separated from the rest of the body. It still has its memories. It still has the ability to imagine. And let's say, let's, just for ease's sake, let's give, this, uh, give the person to whom this brain belonged a name. We'll call him Dennis. And by the way, brownie points, if anybody can guess, why I'm using the name Dennis. It's a rather obscure reason, but if you can guess at it, kudos to you. All right, so Dennis's brain retains all of Dennis's memories and basic brain operations. Now, you might think that Dennis's brain would still be able to think, but if it can, its thinking ability is severely limited. After all, in this state, Dennis's brain has no sensory input. It's not receiving anything from the sense of touch, sight, hearing, smell, sound, or anything like that. It would be like a severe experience of a sensory deprivation tank. But even in the sensory deprivation tank, right, the body still, in some ways, has a sense of balance that it feels, even if it's not actually sensing anything else. Now, the separated brain of Dennis could possibly imagine things, right? We know that people that go into sensory deprivation tanks can have hallucinations and things like that. So it seems plausible that at least the past memories that Dennis, that Dennis had and are retained in the brain could bring about some sort of like hallucinogenic memory sequence of some sort. It would probably not be all that coherent, but it's at least possible. But nevertheless, right, Dennis's brain is limited to what it experienced and remembers from the past. It can't learn anything new. It can't really do anything new, right? Because it's no longer receiving any new information. The brain is really just a brain that retains all the information, and that if we were to put it back into Dennis's body, we'd be able to interact with Dennis again. But insofar as the brain is just kind of like sitting here on the table, it really is not doing much. We can't interact with it. We can poke at it, but that's not really an interaction because even then it can't feel it. Right? So the brain would be severely limited without the rest of the body. Now imagine if you take away even the brain and all you have is the intellect. The intellect is even more limited because it no longer has the memories, 
It no longer has the images that it can use uh, to think about. It just has the universals that it collected in the past. Now, what this means is that the intellect is not going to be able to do a whole lot. It has those forms, but it really can't do much with them. And apart from theological considerations, Dennis's intellect seems to be in a rather bleak position. However, thankfully, being the Thomistic Institute, I can add a theological consideration to this that we can bring to bear upon Dennis's intellect and to see what it might be like to be a separated intellect. So St. Thomas tells us that the separated intellect is not entirely helpless. Why? Because God intervenes. Um, it, it, were God not to intervene, it would be hard to consider how the brain, how the intellect could think at all. But St. Thomas says that the intellect uh, is able to receive what he calls forms of understanding by which the intellect can have something like a power to think. And so this is uh, from, his, from a quote from Summa uh, Theologia, uh, book one, Prima Pars, question 89. And this is also on your handout. He says, when it is separated from the body, the intellect has a mode of understanding by turning to simply intelligible objects as is proper to other separated substances. By other separated substances, he means what we normally call angels. So on, on Aquinas' account of angels, angels are given, don't receive sensory information, they're given forms that allow them to understand the world without experience. And so St. Thomas says the separated soul receives forms in the way that an angel might receive forms. And so he, said, he continues. Um, and the next quote on your handout. As stated above, the separated soul, like the angels, understands by means of species received from the influence of the divine light. Nevertheless, as the soul by nature is inferior to an angel, to whom this kind of knowledge is natural, the soul apart from the body through such species does not receive perfect knowledge, but only a general and confused kind of knowledge. Separated souls, therefore, have, some, have the same relation through such species to imperfect and confused knowledge of natural things as the angels have to a perfect kind of knowledge thereof, end quote. What is St. Thomas saying here? Well, he's saying that angels have much more powerful intellects than we do. They have much more powerful intellects than they do, and it's natural for them to think by using these infused species. But it's not natural for us to use infused species. And so St. Thomas says that the, the separated soul, when it receives a form directly from God to understand, can still only think about those forms, we might say, in a myopic way. So just like somebody who, has, like, uh, who is nearsighted or has some sort of vision impairment, right, has to wear glasses, and if you take off the glasses, everything kind of looks fuzzy and blurry, depending upon how severely myopic you are. Right? So the intellect, without the images, may be able to understand using forms that God gives it, but it would only understand in a myopic sort of way, in a blurry sort of way, because the, the human intellect is meant to understand by using images. But as a separated soul, the intellect is not, does not have those, and so it thinks, but it thinks in a weaker sort of sense. So that's better. But that still doesn't seem all that great, 
Sure, we can think if we are a separated soul, but in a vague sort of manner. But it's precisely because of the way that the intellect is inhibited in a separated state. This is why the resurrection of the body is so important. And we say this every Sunday at Mass, right? I believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in the resurrection of the body because we are only whole human beings when we have the body. And now we can see why. Because only with our bodies can we have all of the powers of what it means to be. Can we think uh, clearly and directly and naturally? It's important and necessary to have the resurrection of the body in order to be a full, flourishing human person. Now, that being said, though, I do need to add another caveat here. St. Thomas does say that the souls of the blessed, even in the separated state, these are the souls of the saints now, are happy. And in fact, they're blissfully happy. They have no sadness in them whatsoever. How is that possible? When, they're, when they have this, this vague way of thinking about things, how is it that a separated soul can be totally happy? Well, it's because the blessed have something that, nobody, that, that no simple separated soul can have. It sees God directly. St. Thomas tells us that God, when seen by the blessed, is not seen by a form, because God is infinite, so God can't be contained within a form. Rather, Scripture tells us that we will see God face to face. And what St. Thomas tells us is that this means that the separated soul will have direct contact with God and not receive any forms from him. And so because of this, the soul is elevated beyond its simple state and able to have full bliss because now it sees God and is fully happy in what it sees and is so distracted by that that it doesn't reflect on the fact of what it's missing. It just sees God and is happy. But of course, God doesn't want us just to experience happiness as intellectual things. He also wants us to be happy as whole human beings. And so we are given our body back so that the happiness of the intellect as it engages with God in the beatific vision, can overflow to the body so that the whole person is magnificently happy. So the happiness is not just to the part of the soul, but to the whole human being. And so as St. Thomas says, we must, however, notice that something may belong to a thing's perfection in two ways. First, as constituting the essence thereof, Thus, the soul is necessary for man's perfection. And secondly, as necessary for its well-being. Thus, the beauty of body and the keenness of perfection to man's perfection. Wherefore, though the body does not belong in the first way to the perfection of human happiness, right? Because the body doesn't see God, the intellect sees God directly. Yet it does so in the second way. For since operation depends on a thing's nature, the more perfect is the soul in its nature, the more perfectly it has its proper operation, wherein its happiness consists. And so what, with what St. Thomas is meaning to indicate here, right, is that not only will the body be perfectly happy, but that in fact the body will be made perfect by virtue of the fact that the, that the intellect has this direct contact with God. And so, in the last quote on your, on your handout, I've skipped over a couple of things, but the last quote on your handout, it says that the desire of the separated soul, right, 
is entirely at rest as regard the thing desired, but it is not wholly at rest as regards the desirer, since it does not possess that good in every way that it would wish to possess it. Consequently, after the body has been resumed, happiness increases not in intensity, but in extent. So what he means by that is that the happiness of the intellect overflows to the rest of the body. So to conclude, we have seen now why it is that for St. Thomas, the soul can survive the death of the body. The soul has many parts and many powers, but there is at least one part and power of the soul, the intellect, that doesn't require a body to exist. Because of this, when the body corrupts, the intellect can survive because the intellect doesn't need the body in order to do its proper operation. And so it survives the death of the body. However, the separated intellect is severely limited, even maimed. It naturally uses images to think, and so God must supply to it a new way of understanding by giving it forms. But it does this in a vague and abstract way. However, despite that fact, the souls of the blessed, the souls of the saints, can experience perfect beatitude, perfect happiness, even in the separated state, because God so fills them with his light that they can't miss anything in that state. But nevertheless, God wants the happiness of the intellect to overflow to the body, and so he makes us whole at the resurrection of the body. And, and that's why in Revelation we hear that there is a new heaven and a new earth, a joining of the heavens and the earth. For that which is proper to the realm of the spirit overflows to the realm of the body, thus bringing about a glorious unity where we all may see God face to face and worship him with all our heart. Thank you. So the question is, why is it that, this, that <clears throat> after death, the person cannot increase in merit. Well, there are a couple of things here. So first of all, right, as we saw, so there are many ways we could talk about this, but let's think about it within the context of this talk. Remember that the intellect, when separated from the body, is not able to learn anything anymore, right? It's because it's not able to receive new information except what God gives it directly. What this also means, it's not able to do anything. And so, with at, at least on its own, Right? It's severely limited and is handicapped and needs help by God. And so in, in that way, right, its inability to do anything means that it also cannot merit. But St. Thomas and other thinkers uh, point out that after the, death, after the death of the body and the soul, the soul has an immediate judgment, right? so that there is a way in which our, our growth as human beings ends at death, and so that there is a kind of final determination there. But that goes into some theological questions that are a bit tricky. And um, again, I'm only a philosopher, so I will leave that to our theologians to go into more detail. So the question is, what does the soul need um, from nutrition in order to operate optimally? Yeah, as nutrition. So the soul, soul properly so-called, doesn't need nutrition itself. It's the body that needs nutrition because the body is continually interacting with things and wearing out, right, and, and giving off matter. It needs to also take in matter. And so there are parts of the soul that do require the body in order to exist. So insofar as the soul requires the body, then the soul requires nutrition because the body requires nutrition in order to stay in existence. And so because there are certain features, because the soul, again, is just the form of the body for Aristotle and St. Thomas. It's not a separate entity in and of itself, but there is 
the human being is a soul-body composite. And so it's hard to talk about the soul and the nutrition part of the soul apart from the bodily parts of the soul because it's just one process where the soul and body are doing this thing called nutrition, taking in new matter and making it part of this thing that we call the human body or the plant body or the animal body or anything like that. Okay. Is there something that the soul needs to, to, soul, to flourish and do well? So again, I'm going, to, I'm going to stick with that answer though, right? Because remember, the soul is not dis, as distinct from the body as that. It's only the intellect that is distinct from the body. So insofar as we're thinking about the intellect as an immaterial part, then the intellect does take in something new insofar as it takes in forms, that it, universal forms that it can understand, right? But the soul, qua soul, apart from the body, or the soul as something distinct from the body, is not really something that we can consider in this sense, that it's really a soul-body composite, the thing itself that takes in nutrition, that takes in things. And so the nutrition part takes in stuff. The senses also take in things, but they take in for instance, the roughness or the smoothness of the table, the heat, right? So they're receiving things, and that helps them. The fact that you're using them helps them to function. Sight takes in things well, but it takes in things as well. And so insofar as you have a body that's properly nourished, then these bodily parts can operate correctly, and therefore, um, and therefore like, you know, the soul will be healthy. But it's, you can't really, on this count, talk about the soul as taking in something apart from the way that the body takes it in, because there's the soul and the body are one thing. Sure. So yeah, the word of so yeah, the word of God is food for the soul uh, in a in a broad sense, but it's a food for the intellectual part of the human being, right? It's food for the human being because we understand the word with our minds, and that understanding transforms how we see the world and also how we interact with the world. So yes, but that would be a part of the intellectual part of the soul, not just the soul in general. Hmm? Good question. So there is a way of talking about potency without talking about material parts, right? So there is, uh, we, Aristotle and St. Thomas do talk about the intellect as having an actual and a potential part. But the potency there is very different than a material potency. So when you have a material potency, there's usually a change in the body, so that some, you take in a new form of some sort. But when the intellect receives a form right into its potential part, it doesn't really change, it just receives a new actuality. It has so immaterial space, we might say. And so there is a way of talking about potency, but it's, a, it's different than the sorts of change that we see in physical bodies, in the way that they undergo potency. So yes, yeah, so St. Thomas, now, in different schools of thought, so for instance, in the Franciscan school of thought here, they would say that that potency just is an, in what they would call an immaterial or spiritual matter. But St. Thomas thinks that that potency is very different from matter. And so that's, a, that's a, a potency. So potency is a broader term. Material potency is a subset of that broader term of potency. Well, good. So remember, so that's a good question. So, how, so if, the, if the intellect, I'm, I'm repeating this for the audio audience, if the intellect receives information from the brain um, but, does it, but doesn't have the brain as a physical realizer, how does that interaction happen? Well, it happens because precisely that the soul that makes the brain to be what it is, is the same soul that is the subject of the intellectual power. 
So it's the same thing. So it's not like, so even though the intellect itself doesn't have a physical location in your body, right? Nevertheless, because your soul is in your body, we can say in an analogous way, your intellect is there. And so the intellect can engage with the, with, with the um, brain because it's part of the same thing, right? It's not a different thing. And so normally the reason why we might suspect that, say, um, an immaterial intellect wouldn't be able to interact with a, with a bodily thing is because they're different things. But because the intellect is just a part of the, of the hylomorphic substance that we call a human being, that, that part can utilize even things that come from the physical aspects of that, of that being.